We extend Christian greetings to all of you. You're all scattered way out there. That's all right. Um, it's good to be here with you and share my topic. You're my last time. So it's been a blessing sharing this topic. And if you're looking for me to give you direction in the library you should have, you're here for the wrong reason. Because I'm not here to tell you, read this book and read that book and this here book you ought to have in your library and that book. But we are talking about the Christian's library tonight. And it's not just a, li a library that's secular or social or whatever you want to call it, but we're talking about the Christian's library. Because we are Christ-like people, huh? We're supposed to be. We should be reading our Bibles. And that's basically what I'm going to talk about. I believe the Christian's library is complete right in this book. I believe you can find everything you need to do to get along in your Christian life right here in this book. And outside of that, and I'm not saying you can't use a lot of commentaries or concordances or all the supplements that are enhancing the Bible and gives you better detail in finding ways to better learn the Bible. But we need to be biblicists. We need to be Bible readers. It is said that if we make much of the Bible, he will make much of us, meaning God. And uh, you know what? That's so true because God is the person that wants this scripture to become alive in your lives and hearts. And without that, you are lacking. Well, if I were to draw a chart and I were to say God is up here and then the Bible would be central right at the top of the triangle under God because he's the one that brought the word. But then from there on, you would go out and umbrella all the other books that you read and whatever is your uh, desire. And I'm not here to try and tell us what all we should read. That's an endless situation. Because in Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that it, there is much wearisome in reading lots of books. I don't know if you find it that way or not, but it can be that way. So in our scripture that is, was given me for a text, it's one verse, and I thought, how in the world am I going to develop a, self, uh, a message off of this? But I did, by the grace of God. But let's turn to that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Before I read the verse, I want, to get, I want us to get the setting of what was taking place here. You remember Paul, in some prior messages he wrote, he had a desire to get to Rome sometime. But I'm sure he didn't expect to get to, to Rome the way he did. He got there by imprisonment. Do you remember when the Roman soldiers and all of them took him to pr uh, prison? And as he was put away in prison, it is thought that possibly it was a government building with a basement that was like a dungeon and probably a ground floor, stone walls, very cold, and just a very crude type of prison. Today, you have air-conditioned prisons. I mean, uh, who wouldn't want to go to prison? In, in our prison system today, everything's so good and, and well. But as we read this, I'd like to make a few comments. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Uh, I looked up what the word parchments are, and they, they are simply scrolls. If you remember seeing pictures of scrolls, they, they roll up the, instead of having a, a book form like this, they would have uh, two rolls, uh, like rollers, with handles on them, and they could roll the pages across, not the pages, but the whole thing. And they were made out of skins, animal skins. And they would write the words of the Bible on them skins, and those skins... The reason they used them, rather than just making books, because the, the preservation of these skins was a lot better. It would keep, preserve itself, and it wouldn't deteriorate like books would or paper. 
So they put them on parchments. Sometimes some of these parchments would be as long as 24 feet and about 11 inches tall, about the height of a book. And they would roll them across, and that's how you would read the scriptures. It was written line by line and on out through on this parchment. And that was, but he suggested that especially he wanted the parchments. But he says, bring all these other books. While he was in prison, and he said, bring his cloak. I'm guessing that where he was kept in prison, it was a very cold place, and he would have desired his cloak. And he was, as he was asking Timothy to bring these things, we never have scripture that Timothy ever got to see Paul again. This was probably the last letter that Paul wrote in prison before he was beheaded for his faith. He died a martyr, a martyr's death. Well, what we'd like to think about tonight is different various ways of what we need to do in reading scripture. But I discovered something else. What is one thing that God cannot do? You know, God is almighty. God cannot what? The Bible specifically spells something out God cannot do. Who knows? Lie. God cannot lie, the Bible says. So that's something God cannot do. But I discovered, and in my studies, I learned something else about God. You're never finished learning. You know that. But I learned something else about God that he can't do either. What can God do elsewhere besides lying? What else can God not do? You're going to school just a little bit here. I'm not much of a teacher, but I'm going to be asking you a few things. So what can God else not do? It starts with an L also. God cannot lie. It doesn't say this in scripture, but it's true. He can't learn. That's the other one. He cannot learn because there is nothing that God does not know. Everything we know about scripture, everything that God ever did and expelled from himself through the Holy Spirit, it is all in place as God, as a person that doesn't need to learn anything. Folks, he knows even how many hairs are on our heads, doesn't he? Isn't that amazing? I mean, you stop and think about that. I don't know how many billions of hair we would have here tonight if we'd pull all the hair out that some of us have. It'd be in the billions and billions, but it'd be a job. And uh, I just got buzzed here on last Friday night. I got an Indian haircut. Put that together. I got an Indian haircut. Do you know Sam Abraham? Did you ever know him? He has, he's from India. He's not a Tomahawk Indian. He's an Indian from India. He was here, and my barber retired at the end of the year. And so I had no barber. I was running around last weekend. My hair was getting really long. It was time to get a haircut. And I talked to Sam. This off the records is to the side. But Sam was at our place. He stayed with us for a week. He was here with Raymond Burkholder. And uh, I said to Sam, I, I don't have a barber anymore. I cut your hair, he said. I said, you'll cut my hair? He said, sure. I said, I don't know. Yeah, he said, when I went to college, we used to cut each other's hair. I said, all right. I went and got my wife's scissor that she cuts cloth. He says, this is a cloth scissor. This is not a barber scissor. And he, I gave him an old comb there. He said, well, this is not a barber comb either. He, doesn't, he didn't know how this is all going to work, but this is the end result. <laughs> anyway, it's fine and all right. I was thankful that they grow back. You know, they come back. But uh, today, you don't really need your hair long to be in, on the inside, right? So what's the deal? Anyway, that's not our subject. I don't even know why I shared that. But thinking about the Christian's library, I want us to get serious about the Word of God. And none of us are any more Christian than we are Christ-like. And how do we become Christ-like? By knowing and understanding the will of God personally in my life. And that's a very elementary uh, thought when you think about it, but truthfully, 
That is what it takes for me to survive spiritually. I need to know the word of God. Well, I'd like to think about a few things, and I want you to go with me in the Bible. We're not going to really stay with our uh, text as such. I think I pretty much explained what Paul was doing as he was in prison, and it was his last days, and he was alone. I, I wonder if he went through some discouraging moments. You remember John the Baptist when... He was proclaiming Christ. He said, make the way for the wilderness for Christ is coming. And when Christ was here and John the Baptist was in jail, they put him in prison. He sent some of his disciples to go to Christ and ask if he was really the Messiah. And yet that's what he was proclaiming. I don't know, folks, do you ever have discouraging moments where you wonder, where you sometimes question certain things and issues about the Bible, and you wonder if it's really the truth of God's word the way they say it is. But, folks, we have to be convinced in our hearts completely that's where it belongs. Well, anyway, let's go to Acts chapter 19. There was a great revival going on in this portion of Scripture, and uh, if you are familiar with it at all, there was a lot of things happening here. And the Bible tells us here, I'd like to go to verses uh, 17 through 21 in chapter 19. And the Bible says here, And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now let's look what was going on here. And it says in verse 18, Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. There was revival going on. Look what verse 19 says. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together. Oh, here we're talking about books. I, I am convinced these books were not Bibles because it says they were curious arts. I'm guessing it was some kind of um, magical things going on or some kind of voodoo witch doctors whatever the case would have been but it tells us here they brought these books together and there was a great revival happening and as they took those books and brought them together the bible tells us here they burned them before all men they got them together made a big heap and made a big fire and folks and then it goes on and says this and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know how many dollars that is, but it's a lot. And I cannot imagine, dear people, the pile of books they burned. And my question to us tonight is, as we think about the word of God and his graciousness to us, maybe there are some things in our homes that we need to search out and see if we should burn them too. I don't know. I don't know what you read, what, what is uh, important in your life, but I want to tell you something. If you expect God to make a great uh, work out of your life, you need to be a person that takes the word of God literally for what it says. Because the Bible says his word is settled forever in heaven. It's never going to change. So uh, folks, you can take this to the bank. It's going to stay by the truth and it will never change. And I thank God for that tonight. I don't know about you, but I'm very grateful to God that he keeps his promises and he will be faithful. And then it tells us, following the burning of the books, and I say tonight, let's us be sure that the things we read are secondary to the cause of the Bible. Because it tells us here, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. You notice that? Because they made a decision to get rid of things in their lives that were not equal to what God's word should have been in their lives, they burned them books and they started fresh and the word of God came forth and there was a great revival happened. Glory to God. They got saved and they got uh, changed their lives. But then it tells us in verse 21, after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and asked you to go over to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And this is taking us back to what I was telling you early. He wanted to get to Rome, but Paul never got to Rome the way he would have liked to get to Rome. 
Well, that's uh, beside the point. It was okay. Paul was ready to die. You knew, and you remember what it says there in Timothy? He says, for I am now ready to be offered. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Folks, what about your life? Are you prepared for the day that you're going to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet him because you have faithfully taken this book and Bible and lived your life accordingly the way you should have? Well, everything we are talking about is based on what material we read or what we allow in our lives for Christian living. And I'd like to go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at a scripture verse here, or three scripture verses, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Let's turn there. Okay. 18 to 21, here the Bible says, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Notice, whereunto you do well that ye take heed. The warning, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. What does the scriptures do? It lights the path of darkness, that it, it, it dispels darkness and a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. We know according to scripture that the Bible is for all. It's not just for a given chosen group, but it's for all people, not a private interpretation. And then verse 21 is what we really want to zero in on. It says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Let's remember, God was using men in writing the scriptures. And the Bible says, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I love that. How many writers, were the, how many writers did, did it take to write the Bible? Do you know? It's right on about 40. And how long did it take to write the whole Bible and get it together? Do you have any idea? 2,650 years it took to bring the scriptures from beginning to end into completion. Now, how many books are in the Bible? All right, how many in the Old Testament? 39. How many are in the new then? 27. Okay, good. Some people had that, some people don't. I At a few churches I asked that question, some went blank on it. But I think that some of these things, dear people, that we need to learn from the Bible that are going to make the Bible exciting to read. Okay? When you go to the book of Genesis... We call that Genesis. What does the book of Genesis mean? Genesis. Beginning. Book of beginnings. What does Exodus mean? Going out. It's a journey. It's an exodus through the wilderness. You read about all that happened with the children of Israel moving through the wilderness. Remember the story. Exodus. They went for an exodus. And then you go into Leviticus. What's, the Leviticus, uh, what's Leviticus about? Law. Okay, why do they call it the Levitical law? Is there a reason? Oh, yes. Very good. The Levites. Because of the Levites. Why did the Levites become the priesthood? He separated them out and they were the ones that were willing to stand. Yes. That's where the Levitical priesthood came from, and that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. And as you go through the scriptures, and we're going to get to uh, Kings here shortly somewhere, but when you think about the book of Kings, what for other books relate to the book of Kings? 
Chronicles, exactly. How often do you read in First and Second Kings and you get down through a chapter and it will say, and isn't the rest of it written in the book of Chronicles? And they parallel with each other. Sometimes you can get better details of some happening in the Kings out of Chronicles that will relate to that same portion of Scripture. And it's very interesting to do that. And as we go through the Bible, we have what we call, uh, do we have, uh, we have two different types of prophets. What do we call them? Major and minor prophets. And you can read the minor prophet books and look at the major prophet books, and I'm not sure how you make that division, but you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of them guys, and those fellas were more involved in getting the scriptures put together, wrote more. You have a lot of the minor prophets are very small books, but they carry a lot of weight. But there's, as you go through scripture like that, there are many things and in, in Isaiah. How does Isaiah is one of the most relating books to the New Testament when Jesus Christ came in the glory of heavens. So we call that all, and as we move into the New Testament, what there was someone once said that there are four people in the Bible that they wrote the same story and they don't know why. Well, what are the four books that are written of a biography for Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those wrote about the life of Jesus Christ. And they spell out things differently. Uh, in, in the book of uh, Luke, it is said that 50, and I never knew this before, but it is said there that there's 52% of Luke is parables. Would have you realized that before? I didn't know it either. But 52% of Luke's writings are parables that Jesus uh, preached about. What do we call Matthew chapter 5 and 6? What do we call that? Sermon on the Mount. Okay, that's, when, that's the longest discourse that Jesus ever preached there through the Sermon on the Mount. And when we call that the Mount on the Mount of Beatitudes. And all those kinds of things. And then as we think about that and we go back into the book of Hebrews, what do we call the book of Hebrews? What do we call the book of Hebrews? I'm just giving you this to help you and me to understand better how the scriptures relate and are put together for you and I. What do we call the book of Hebrews? The book of better things. What do we call the book of Revelation? The book of beyond here. The book of future things. A lot of the prophecy from that scripture in the Revelation is not yet revealed to us today, is it? Yes, the saints that have gone on from here understand what that all means. But as we think about that, God used all these men to write the Holy Scriptures. Now, today, folks, we have a lot of people that are agnostics. They call themselves atheists, whatever they want to call themselves, and they start to condemn and say the Bible is not really a strong source anymore, and it doesn't really relate. Well, do you know that in 1952, over in Jerusalem, they have what they call the Cave of Quanrams, down near the Dead Sea. And these cave openings were up there for thousands of years ever since the, uh, ever since the creation. And one day, in 1952, there was a little shepherd boy. He was tending his father's sheep down by the Dead Sea there, grazing off the grass that they could find. Well, he didn't have a lot to do, but he chose to pick up some stones along the Dead Sea there, and he was throwing these things and trying to throw them in the little holes of the caves. They were like up in the air. We saw that place where they said, they, well, I wanna, I wanna tell you this first. And as he threw these stones, he was throwing them and he got one right in that cave, and he heard something crack and break inside the cave. 
and his curiosity got the best of him, and he crawled up the, up the ridge and went in that cave, and lo and behold, he discovered that he had thrown a rock in there, and he had broken a pottery vessel. He had broken something. And as he looked around, and as they discovered, you know what they found? They found the complete writings of, of uh, Isaiah as they were originally written. Isn't that amazing? And God preserved that in that cave to be found in 1952 to again remind people of the accuracy of when you have this blessed book today and the parchments that were found there were the exact writings of the book of Isaiah in completion. It was all there. Well, this got their curiosity stirred and there was about 11 different caves along that ridge and they went into these caves and they found a lot of scriptural they weren't complete anymore, but they found a lot of the Bible in these caves. And today, you can go over in the Jewish archives in a, hum uh, what do you call it, a uh, humidity-controlled building so that it preserves. And they have it all in there, and you can look at that today for your own interest. Isn't that amazing? Since all that time, going back about 2,600 years, and up till now, in 1952, they find the original Hebrew uh, writings of the book of Isaiah on the scroll or the parchments. That, folks, is exciting for the Christian. It is an affirmation of who God is. It is an affirmation to me that God is still in control of everything and he just keeps things in place in order how he wishes to. Well, anyway, I was going to tell you also in the beginning here, when we were talking about the Christian's library, a Christian is one, and you probably know what this means, but I looked up the words Christian and library, and the Christian is one who believes, professes to believe, who is assumed to believe in the religion of Christ, a believer in Christ who is characterized by real piety. And then the word, the uh, word definition, the definition for the word library, a collection of, it is pretty simple, a collection of books belonging to a private person or a public institution, to the keeping of a collection of two uh, of books. And that's what a library is. But we want to talk about the Christian library. So we want to think about this idea, facts from the scriptures. And we were just talking about some of those, these things that God reveals and makes present and makes known to us today. And we want to think about facts from the scriptures, first of all. In definition, that means anything done or that comes to pass, an act or deed, an effect produced or achieved, an event, reality, truth, a true statement. And one thing I'd like to impress on our hearts tonight, if you go to the beginning of Genesis, what does the Bible say there? What does it say in verse 1? In the beginning. Was that the beginning of God or the beginning of time? Well, we as believers would say God never was in time. But this is time beginning itself when man, when God was going to create the world and put it in place. In the beginning, and as we picture God, I, I don't know, did you ever try to figure out how God is eternal? It almost, could we say, blows your mind. Because when did God ever start to exist? When was God? I don't know how to explain it to you. He's eternal. But folks, this way, I, this is how I describe it. If you were to draw one big circle, that would be eternity, just continually moving on. It, it never ends, it never starts, but it's just completely going on. Somewhere in that circle, you might have the tiniest of a line that you can see there, which represents your and my life in that time circle. 
You get that picture? God chose to have you here for this time and this place as it is today. And in that circle, you become the tiniest little slice of life. And you have every opportunity to live that as you will. God gives you that choice. But facts from the scriptures. Uh, the book of the Bible, when we see God, we know that he is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. There is nothing that is hidden from God. There is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing he doesn't understand. So that's where I drew my conclusion that God cannot learn because he has it all. We learn from God, but God never learns from us. He says over and over in the scriptures, I am that I am. I am the Lord. It is in bold print sometimes. Folks, how does God conceive himself to you in his life? In, I mean, how does his life conceive in your life? He is God. There's nothing needs to be said anymore. He is in control. Facts from the scriptures. Well, we have biography. You can go into the, the, uh, the book of, uh, well, you can read through Deuteronomy. Well, not Deuteronomy so much, but Leviticus. And there's so many that spell out the biographies of people's lives over and over. And we can go through, get genealogy from the Bible. You can use it for a text for math. It said it's numbered and numbers and numbers of uh, multitudes of things in it. And it's not just that, but it's also a book of geography. It lays out different scriptural ways of the way. Why do we call the book? Uh, if you want to talk about geography some, why, why do we call the book of Acts the book of Acts? Why do you call the book of Acts Acts? All right, what does Acts really mean? Deeds. deeds, it means actions. And deeds, yes it would. But the acts of the apostles are the actions of the apostles. And you can put that together like that. These are things that maybe they don't mean so much in our settings, but I wanna tell you something. If you can hunt and screen out the Bible for details, you will find that the word of God will become alive and exciting in your life. Really? I'll never forget, uh, Ken Brenneman used to tell this story of one of their old faithful senior members in the church. Well, she couldn't get to church so often anymore, so sometimes he'd go visit her. And as he went into, into her home to visit her, he, he, she'd be sitting at the table and, oh, come in, Brother Ken, come in. And she said, just a minute here, I'm reading something in the Bible here. And she was at uh, John chapter 14 that day when he came in. She said, oh, I'm so excited. She said, uh, the Lord has a house prepared for me in heaven. He's going to give me a brand new house. This old house I'm going to leave, but he's giving me. And he said she could hardly see anymore. She had a magnifying glass, and she was right down in the Bible. Oh, my, look at that. He's building a house for me. She was all excited. How many of us get excited about heaven? Huh? Or are we pretty earthly bound? I, I'm speaking to me too. I have things to work at, dear people. I am a human being, right like you are. And some of these earthly, earthly things are very attractive. I want to tell, uh, tell you another thing. Uh, when the children of Israel left Egypt, you remember they were in Egypt? Why was the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, only given to the children of Israel after they left Egypt? Do you remember? They weren't out of Egypt long. They crossed the Red Sea, and God worked miraculously in complaining and grumbling. Moses went up into Mount Sinai. God wrote him the Ten Commandments. Why did they need the Ten Commandments? What's your thought? Just for something to read because they had a lot of pastime, they didn't have to work for the Egyptians anymore. <laughs> Do you know why? 
Down in Egypt, they experienced a lot of hardship. The Egyptians were hard on them. How long did they cry out to God for a deliverer? They had to build bricks. They had to use build bricks without straw. And they were pressured and persecuted by the Egyptians, which kept them in line to serve their God. And you see, as soon as they left the Egyptian land and their persecutors, now they were free. But now God had to give them the word so that they would be uh, challenged to live their lives closer to him. And how often, after they even had the 40-year experience and wandering there in the book of Exodus, how often did the children of Israel complain to God and had their whole problems just Everything was wrong. Then finally, finally through the leading of Joshua, after Moses died, they get into the land of Canaan and they experience all the goodness. What did God tell them? What is the first thing that they had to hear? Be careful of all the blessings you are going to receive lest you forget the Lord your God. Folks, you know what? I am of the impression man in his condition cannot handle blessing. Would you agree with me? No? It's, it's uh, I'd say if we live in, you know, we, we, we feel bad for our persecuted brothers and sisters over in other countries. But we are blessed. We are persecuted with all the blessings we have. The things we used to need and the things we used to want has really changed. Our needs that we think became our needs, we have moved that one line so far up that everything is just becoming our needs. And we just have it so good, dear people. We are blessed but we need to beware lest we forget the Lord our God. That is why we have this blessed book. Well, fascination of the scriptures. We want to consider that just a little bit. But the children of Israel had received the Ten Commandments. They were to put them in the Ark of the Covenant. They were to carry that Ark, that covenant, that Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments in it, the tables of stone, all, all the way as they had journeyed and as they went, they had to keep them with them and they were used to remind them of what God was telling them. Well, I want to uh, take us to a scripture which I found very interesting. You know, there was a song that God asked Moses to write before he died. Did you know that? You know, when he was going to go in transition give uh, Joshua the leadership role, and God had told Moses that he's going to die, but I want you to write a song and give it to the children of Israel. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Uh, verses... 24 through 26. Let's notice something here. We, we don't have time to read about Moses preparing himself to die, but God had given him a command to write a song that he was to give to the children of Israel. And you can read about that in, the, in this whole chapter. But let's jump to verse 24 and see what it says. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished. And up in verse uh, 21, you will find there that this song shall testify against them as a witness. Now, I don't know if it was a song that they sang or what they got, but he was told to write a book that would have the commands in that they were to follow God. And then in verse 25, he says that Moses commanded the Levites, going back to the... Levitical priesthood in charge of the church, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, now catch 26. I think this is really neat. 
You know the children of Israel put so much stock in that Ark of the Covenant, in that Ten Commandments and those tables of stone, they carried them around like something precious that would save them from any condition and situation. But how many times did God allow that, that uh, the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant to be removed and taken from them by some other country that was a, a uh, ungodly situation? But notice something in verse 26 here. He says, take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. I never knew that was in there. But this Ark of the Covenant was so special that they rode it on an ox cart. And you remember that. I can't think of his name anymore. But one guy touched it and he was killed immediately. It was the holiness of God in that Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments and Tables of Stones were in. Well, look what it says there. It says that they should take this song or this book, whatever Moses was to give them, before he died. And the Bible says that they put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant. I just think that's fantastic. That he took that book and he slid it in there with the precious table, tables of stone to preserve them for the children of Israel to understand the will of God for their lives. How many, and I, I want to suggest to us, how many of us in our homes, we sometimes will get some other book that we have the Bible and the Bibles are precious to us. I know that you appreciate the Bible. It means something to you in your life. But folks, how dedicated are we to believe that that word of God is what's going to see us through in the, to the end of our Christian life? And here, uh, as I think of this book that they slid in the side of the Ark of the Covenant, then the, in our lives, in our homes, how many of us, we get some books in there that come alongside of the Bible and they condemn our spiritual condition for keeping our Bible reading and study faithful. Huh? I'm talking to me too. Fascination of the scriptures. Um, well, let's go to Deuteronomy. Well, we are here in Deuteronomy chapter 31. There's something I, or no, I'd like to go to 2 Kings. Let's go there. We won't have time for everything here. I, I don't know. I, I ran into some situations and my, my preaching doesn't always come out the same. I don't know. I, one time I get over it, the next time I don't. But tonight I feel I'm, I'm slacking. I don't know why. Well, the good Lord understands all this. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 22. He's in charge, is he not? Uh, verses 10 and well, that, I don't know that we, uh, we want to focus then on verses 10 and 11 as we go here, but let's get the setting. Let's get this setting and study the book of Kings and see how faithful the kings were in this Bible. There weren't too many, dear folks. Manasseh, do you know that name? Manasseh, King Manasseh, was in charge of the tribe of Judah. And when he was king, the Bible tells us that he was a very corrupt and evil king. He never did anything right. He was just against the, the will of God. I don't know why a guy like him fought God so. But you notice in verse 25 of chapter 21, just prior to 22, and here's what I was talking about when I said about First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It says, now the rest of the acts of Ammon, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? <laughs> so if you don't get all the details here, go to the book of Chronicles. It'll probably read it out a little better or something. But let's get the picture. Manasseh was Ammon's father. Manasseh, very wicked king. Ammon followed him. He was a very wicked, wicked king. He built high places in the groves and everywhere. And he did things very wickedly too. Along comes Ammon's son. Grandpa had failed. Dad had failed. Here comes Josiah. An eight-year-old boy 
And he wants to do what is right for the Lord. You notice in verse 2 it says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But I want you to notice something in this. And it's not very often. There's about twice or three times that in the book of Kings you can read about something that is in verse 1 here. In chapter 22. It says when he began to reign, he reigned 30 and 1 years in Jerusalem. Look what it says there. And his mother's name was Jediah. Jediah. Do you see that? You won't find that in any, hardly any other place. It says his mother's name. And she was the daughter of Basket. Moms. Do you think maybe. This young boy. Dad didn't do well. Manasseh did. His grandpa did worse. But here comes this young little boy, and I can just see Mama saying to Josiah, my son, don't do and revoke your God as your father and grandfather did. Can you see that in this setting? Moms, you had the greatest privilege and opportunity to raise up children for the Lord. I cannot understand how that, this young boy was as faithful and true to God as he was with a grandpa and a father as he had. But let's notice something. The, the, the high places were built and they were worshiping idols. Josiah made up his mind, all these places are going to be destroyed, and he did. But then the temple was in ruins, the church. The church wasn't even used anymore. It was done. They were no longer worshiping. And here, Hilkiah the high priest, Joshua, or Josiah gets him and Shaphan the scribe to go in the house of the Lord, the temple, and get things set up in, in order and get everything straightened out. And he was getting money together and working so that they could rebuild and make the structure nice again. The temple of the Lord was totally in shambles, according to the scripture. And do you know what else? As they were going through those uh, shambles and all the things that were left go and destroyed, I'm imagining this place was a wreck. But then it says that Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, I have found the book of the law in the house of God. Somehow, dear people, somehow, the Bible had got lost and it was laying in the temple or the church. Can you imagine this with me? That for them two, them generations of grandpa and, and his son and this young man, in that period of time, the whole temple had been pretty much destroyed and in a mess. And here comes Josiah, and here the Hilkiah finds the Bible, the parchments, I'm sure they were the scroll parchments. And he says, here it is. And he took it. Hilkiah told Shaphan, take it to Josiah. And Josiah says in verse 10, it says, Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book and Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. And the king commanded all those that this was what we need to do. And he said, go and inquire of the Lord because the Lord was, he had been angered by the, his anger had been kindled against the children of Israel. And he says to Shaphan and the priest and all them, he says, go inquire of the Lord and for me and for the people and for all of Judah and find out if the wrath of the Lord will be, is still kindled against us because of our sins. Oh dear people. How we need to search our lives. Continually before God. And be sure. That our lives are where God wants them to be. As this young man Josiah did. And he was faithful according to scripture. He was a faithful man. And I believe it was because his mother. Was faithful. That was the last bell right. <laughs> there was something else that really struck me in this portion of scripture. They went to ask 
wisdom, and here was a prophetess, a prophetess. And the Bible says here, now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college. <laughs> they had colleges back then. Isn't that interesting? A place of deep learning in the college. I must close. Um, fulfillment of the scriptures and finality is what I want to conclude with. But there's something that I think we need to keep foremost. It, say, it is said that once a church ceases to record history and learn by it, the church will soon be history. And there is another thing that we want to think about when we think about the church. The Bible says what, that we're the people of the church. That is who makes the church, right? Where, there, where the people are, if there is no vision, the people will perish. And if I want to encourage you about something, have a vision for the church. Continue a vision. And I know these brothers do, and all of you. But continue that vision. Make it something worthwhile. And this is another thing I want to leave with you about a vision. Vision without action. You know, we can have a lot of visions. Men are visionaries, aren't they? They often just go and they get big ideas. And the women sometimes wonder, where are you going with all this? But vision and actions never happen. That They call that daydreaming. And then actions with vision... Our actions without vision is a nightmare. Sometimes we run ahead way out there somewhere and we get lost in it. But then this is the best one. Vision with action is beautiful reality. In thinking about our lives and time, I just want to read a little poem to you and then I must close. The Bible, it goes like this. Forgive me, God, I had no time. The year slipped by and time was spent and all the good things that I meant to do were left undone because I had no time to stop and pause. But rushed about, went here and there, did this and that, was everywhere. I had no time to meditate on things worthwhile, no time to wait upon the Lord and hear him say, well done my child, you've shown the way. And so I wonder, after all, when life is over and I am called to meet my Savior in the sky where saints live on and never die, if I can find one soul I've won to Christ by some small deed I've done, or will I hang my head in wine? Forgive me, God, I had no time. <laughs>